This morning, um, I want to share with you um, a little bit of what has been going on in the student ministry this semester. Our emphasis this semester has been entitled, We Are Family. We are family. And we've been going through this for several weeks. It was a part of our uh, riot week this year and is going to go all the way through our fall retreat in a few weeks um, as we emphasize this with our students. And so as I was thinking and preparing what God wanted me to share I came to the realization that this is a good message for all of us, for all of us to think about and remember and acknowledge that we are family. And so I want to share with you what God's laid on my heart this morning about family. Now, when I say the word family, um, different people in the room think about it differently. Some people in the room immediately think about a great family, one where they have been supported, one where they find their security and unconditional love. But other people think of family a little differently. They think about all the disagreement that happened in their house and the arguing and the anger and the jealousy and separation and even divorce. And so when we think about family in the church, we want to make sure that we are leaning in towards that first type of family where we're loving each other. Because right now, this world teaches us all about division. And we see jealousy and anger and arguing and separation in our society. But we can do better than that. We as the church can do better than that. And we can show each other love and support and security. And that's the kind of family that God has called us to be. So with that in mind, if you will open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 10 through 13. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Once you find your place, would you please stand with me as we read? First Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly unified in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some of you, from, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you say, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Thank you. You can be seated. So as we dive into this scripture, it starts out by saying, I appeal to you, brother and sister. Again, in verse 11, it says, my brothers and sisters. Paul has acknowledged them as family. Now, we all know that these are not biological brothers and sisters of Paul. They are spiritual brothers and sisters of Paul. And he is calling them brothers and sisters to acknowledge that they are family in Christ. And so we know that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we are adopted into his family, that we all become family of God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, 19, it says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people 
and also members of his household, members of the family of God. When we accept Christ, we are no longer strangers to each other, but we are members of one family. And as family, we should treat each other like family. How many of you in the room have heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water? Yes? I'm so happy to see those hands go up because when I first asked the students had they heard this, none of them had heard of it, okay? But you guys, you've heard of it. You know what this means. This means that the blood family relatives that you have and those relationships are thicker or more important than other relationships. And so that is um, the idea that we are family that should stick together and be there for each other. And this is a great idea that we talk about in families and encourage that type of devotion towards each other. But as I looked at this phrase and I looked at it, there's actually some debate over whether that was the original phrase or if there was another phrase. Now, I don't know which one came first, but what I do know is there's two different versions of this. The version we know and has lasted to today, and the other version said by a priest back in the 1500s. And his version of this phrase is, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And so in this version, This priest is saying that the blood of the covenant, the blood of Christ, the relationships of all the people who are covered by the blood of Christ are significant relationships greater even than the water of the womb, which would be a brother and sister born of the same womb. And so there's some debate over which one is original. And I don't know that we need to to decide that today. But what I do think is the second version may be a little more biblical. It may be a little bit more of what we find in Scripture. Let me dive into that a little bit. First, the blood of the covenant. We understand that covenant is significant to God, that God values the covenants that he enters into, and they are important. And so we see in the book of Psalms that God says, I will not break my covenant. He declares that the covenant will not be broken. And we see that throughout the Old Old Testament with Noah He makes a covenant with Noah that he will not flood the world again. And he has kept that covenant. We see with Abraham that he says, I will give you a land and I will give you a people. And of course, he fulfilled that covenant, kept his word. We see later that when David comes along, that he makes a covenant with David, that the promised one will come from his seed. And of course, that covenant was true as well. So we see the significance of God and how he values covenant and how he keeps his covenant. We see the value of covenant in the marriage covenant. God has declared that the marriage relationship is a covenant relationship and it should not be broken. And we see how much value he places on that covenant. Then we jump to the New Testament and we get to the new covenant, the covenant of Jesus. The covenant that covers all of us who have accepted him as his Lord and Savior. The covenant that bonds us together is the blood covenant of Jesus Christ. And that is what binds us together as family. Second, I think in Jesus' earthly ministry, he demonstrated this concept in some of his teachings. Let me read Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50 to you. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd... 
His mother and his brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Whoever does the will of God, that's your family. Whoever does the will of God, whoever has submitted to the will of God, that is your brother and your sister and your family. Now, I told the students, and I'll tell you too, this doesn't give us the right to disrespect other people, even family that's not believers in Christ, because the Bible tells us that we should honor our fathers and mothers, even if they're unbelievers. But this family, this family bought by the blood of Christ, there is importance there. And Jesus is trying to teach us that those people are significant relationships, important relationships that we need to value. So these people that we value, these are people in this room that have accepted Christ. These could be people in your household. These could be people at your work. These are people all over the world that has accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior and entered into the new covenant of Christ. Now, Jesus is teaching us that we should treat those people with love and respect. And I think we've lost this a little bit. I think as Christians, we've lost the importance of this family a little bit. Because when we read in the book of Acts chapter 4, it says that those people in that church, they shared everything that they had. They shared everything they had with one another. No one's need was not met. And imagine today a congregation that was completely there for each other, that there was no need unmet, that we were willing to share everything we had to meet any need that anybody in our family had. Imagine that church. We've kind of lost that a little bit. In Acts chapter 4, it also says that all the believers were one in heart and one in mind. One in heart and one in mind. Well, that goes back to our verse. Remember what I said in chapter 11, uh, chapter verse 10, it says that you should be perfectly unified in mind and thought. Wow. The church in the book of Acts, they got it. They were unified in mind and thought. They were perfectly unified. And so we have lost that today, and we need to take steps to get back to that. I want to read our scripture one more time to you before we dive any farther, just so that we're all on the same page. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but, you, but that you are perfectly unified in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you, what I mean is this, one of you say I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, obviously, when we read this last section, 
we see that there was some division among the church in Corinth. We see that there were different groups trying to follow different leaders. And we understand who these leaders are. First, Paul. History in the book of Acts tells us that Paul went to Corinth and that he started this church. So we understand that there are some people in the church that have some loyalty to Paul. Many people were saved under his message, his preaching and starting of the church. So there's loyalty there. Acts also teaches us that as he left Corinth, that Apollos later took up the work. And Apollos, it tells us in the book of Acts, is an eloquent man, powerful in public debate. An eloquent man, powerful in public debate. So we can acknowledge that. We can understand that this preacher had come in and that he was eloquent and that he sat in the city um, gate and he debated with people and he was powerful in what he did there. And so he attracted a following well. Many people were loyal to Apollos as well. And so some people say, I follow Paul. Some people say, I follow Apollos. The other name it gives us is Cephas, which is probably Peter. There is no historical record that Peter ever went to this church, but the idea here is that Peter would have preached a gospel um, at the time which would have been considered more conservative than Paul or Apollos. It would have been one a little bit more grounded in the Old Testament law and the understanding of that. And so apparently there was a group of people that uh, believed more along those lines that they should still be following some of the Old Testament laws. And so we have these three different groups that are divided, and Paul is trying to bring them back to Christ. So he asks those three questions. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? The Scripture doesn't give an answer, but the answer is implied. No, Christ is not divided. No, Paul was not crucified for you. No, you were not baptized in my name. While I delivered a message and I even baptized you, it wasn't in my name. It was in the name of Christ. And that is what brings us together, the name of Christ. And so it doesn't matter who you want to follow as long as we're unified in Christ. What Paul is trying to say is that the blood covenant It's thicker than water. You see, the blood of Jesus, it is more important than what teacher you want to follow. You see, the blood of Jesus is more important than your ideas versus their ideas. The blood of the covenant of Jesus is more important than you being right and them being wrong and you winning the fight of the day. The blood of the covenant is what brings us together because none of us, None of us teachers are worthy of following except Christ. So please follow Christ. That's what Paul is trying to get across to the church at Corinth and what we all need to accept today. Earlier in, the, in our passage, Paul says that, perfectly, that we should be perfectly unified in mind and thought. Perfectly unified in mind and thought. Now that's a big one. Perfect, that's a big word. One that we have a lot of trouble with. You know, many of you know I have a twin brother that I'm close to and I don't always agree with him, much less all of you. There's too many thoughts, there's too many ideas for us to be perfect. 
But that doesn't mean we give up. You think this falls into the category kind of like when we're commanded to be perfect in the Bible, perfect like Jesus? We look at that and we all know we can't be perfect like Jesus. There's no way. We can't obtain that until we reach heaven. But again, that doesn't mean that we cast it off and don't strive towards it. No, we strive towards perfection and we take steps getting closer and closer throwing off our old self and embracing the new self that comes from Christ. And as we do that, we get closer to perfection, knowing that we'll never achieve it, but we're moving in that direction. So this command here, I think, falls into that same category. Be perfectly unified in mind and thought. We may never achieve that, but we as a church need to take steps towards perfect unity in mind and thought. Paul, I think, gives us some ideas of how we can take some steps in that direction because he ends talking about Christ, pointing us towards Christ. And so we have to start thinking that we can agree about Christ. I hope every one of us in the room that is a believer can agree that Jesus was born of a virgin. I hope that we can all agree that he lived 33 years, approximately 33 years on this earth, and lived a perfect life. He never sinned, yet he went to the cross and died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. And later he raised from the dead to defeat sin and death. I hope that we can all agree on that. And if we can, we're starting to see that we can be unified in mind and thought. Because we start with the big stuff, and once we acknowledge who Christ is and we agree on that, then we start to look at some of the big ideas of Christianity, the big ideas of what it means to follow Christ. We acknowledge first that salvation comes through faith alone and not by works. And we agree on that. We move forward and we acknowledge who the God is that we serve, that he is a monotheistic God that exists in the perfect trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we acknowledge this truth and we become more unified in mind and thought. We can acknowledge that the church is the bride of Christ, that we are here as his bride to represent him on earth, and that one day he is coming back to gather his people to take them to heaven for eternity. If we can all agree on those things, we start to acknowledge that maybe we can come to unity in mind and thought. And maybe some of the other stuff that are a little less important starts to fade to the back and becomes less significant and becomes an issue no more because we can be unified in our thoughts of Christ. Now, we'll never agree on everything But that's okay because unity does not mean uniformity. I mean, we don't all have to dress the same, thankfully. We don't all have to talk the same, and we don't all have to walk the same. But unity is not found in that. Unity is found in the blood that we have of Jesus Christ. And so from the youngest person in the room to the oldest person in the room, From the lightest skin color person in the room to the darkest skin color person in the room. From the most athletic person in the room to the biggest nerd in the room. We all have something in common, and that's Christ. And if we start there, then we can become unified in mind and thought. Second, Paul also says that we should agree with one another in what we say. 
We should agree with one another in what we say. Guys, we're not very good at this. This means that we have to tame our tongue, and we're not very good at that. We as church members sometimes gather and talk about other people. In fact, we as humans, we like to talk about other people. And so we find that creeping into the church to where we may be talking negatively about people. We sometimes get in groups and we talk about the church, maybe in not the right way. We have a hard time guarding our tongue. But if we are to be a church that's unified, if we are to be a church that loves each other, that are the church that Paul is asking us to be, we need to commit to each other that we will not engage in talking bad about people. Now, I shared this with the teenagers several weeks ago, and one night, I don't know if it was that night or the next night, there was a group of teenagers standing around talking. And as I walked by, I heard one of our teenagers correct the group and say, we don't need to be talking like this. I was excited. One person listened. But today we all need to listen because we need to be bold and brave and stand up when we hear that going on. When we're in a group that starts talking about somebody, we need to say, we don't need to be engaged in this conversation. We need to be lifting people up. So we need to commit that we will not talk bad about people. As a congregation, we need to commit that we will not gossip that we will not share other people's dirty laundry, that we will not share other people's story, we will not spread rumors. We need to commit to that, that all of us individually will not engage in gossip. We need to t commit to each other that we will not talk down to each other, that instead we will lift each other up, as the Hebrew writer says, that we will spur one another on towards good deeds and love. That's the kind of people that we need to be. When I think about how we talk to people, I'll share a story with, about my boys. Sorry, boys. I got their permission. Several weeks ago, we were cooking breakfast for the students across the street in the annex. We were going to have pancakes and bacon. And so me and several adults and both of my boys, Mason, 8th grade, Connor, 10th grade, we're there cooking. Mason, my middle schooler, was flipping pancakes while Connor was helping me with the bacon. And some of the ladies decided to make Mickey Mouse pancakes. Yeah, we shouldn't be doing that in the Baptist church, I know, but it's all right. <laughs> so Mason, watching the ladies make Mickey Mouse pancakes, decides, I want to make a Mickey Mouse pancake. So he pours out his batter, he cooks it, and guys, it was perfect. I mean, an amazing Mickey Mouse, just like Walt Disney had done it himself. And the ladies acknowledged, hey, good job, Mason, that's awesome. Well, if you get one good Mickey pancake, you're going to go for number two. So he pours his batter down, he's trying to make a Mickey pancake, and guys, I don't know what happened. It wasn't like Walt Disney's did it. It was like a two-year-old did it, okay? It was not good. But the ladies were encouraging. They looked at Mason and they said, oh, that's okay. Your first one was perfect. You'll get the next one. That's okay. And one of them said, 
actually, it's really cute. It looks like a bear. I don't know how that happens. <laughs> but not his high school brother. His high school brother looks at him and goes, man, that's awful. I can't believe how bad you are. I'm better than that. Well, middle school brother wasn't going to take that, right? So middle school brother looks right back at him and said, well, you're awful too. You haven't even done one. I'm better than you. I don't remember the exact words, but you get the idea of the interaction. Here's my point. When we are young, that's the kind of conversation I hear all the time. But as we mature, maybe we're more like those ladies, still being able to encourage people. It's the same in our faith. When we're immature in our faith, we like to point out other people's sins to make us feel better. When we're immature in our faith, we like to talk about other people so that we feel better about ourselves. But as we mature in our faith, we start to understand that that's not the right way. That instead, we should spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And instead of tearing others down to their face or behind their back, we encourage them. We encourage them in the good that we see in them. Acknowledging that and encouraging that. We encourage them in the potential that we see because we all have potential and we need to help bring that out in our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we interact and treat people with the value that they have because we all have value in Christ. So when we mature in our faith, that's who we are. That's who we become, more like the Scripture teaches us to be. You know, I don't know what work environment you live in, day to day, where you go, what you experience. But what I do know is that this world, a lot of times, is hard. You might work in a place where it is cutthroat, that people are doing whatever it takes to climb the corporate ladder. They will step on your face and not think twice about it. But that should not be in this building. That should not be within God's church. The church should be different than the world. In this place, we should be able to come knowing that we will not be treated like that, that we will not be talked about like that, that we will not get stabbed in the back, that we will not be thrown under the bus. But instead, this should be a place where we know that we are accepted, that we know that we can find love, a place when we come in here, it's a place of security that we all want to be at because we're loved by each other and by God. So I close with the idea of why is all this important? Why is unity important? Well, first of all, it's in God's Word, and obedience to God's Word is important. Now, if that's not enough for you, we can go on and talk about peace. We as Christians are called to peace. In Colossians chapter 3, we, it says, As members of one body, we are called to peace. The only way we find peace in the Christian family is through unity. Through unity of following these commands of being one in mind and thought. Let there be no division among us. When that happens, we find peace. And don't we all need peace? 
Don't we all in this world, this world of division and strife, don't we all need a place of peace? A place that we can come to and rest. Because there's rest when we come to church and there's unconditional love among the family of God. Don't we all need that? Don't we all need a place of unity? This world pushes division and separation, but in this place, we need a place of unity. And third, in this passage, we see that Paul continues on to talk about Christ. And so the third reason that we need unity in the church is for the sake of the gospel. Remember, Jesus said that they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. They will know that you are my disciples the way you love each other. And so the unity that we have tells the world outside these walls that we are his followers, that we find unity, that we are different than the world. There's a world watching you and watching us. How do we treat each other? And if we treat each other the same as the world, who would want to be a part of that? But if we treat each other with unity like the Bible teaches us to, there won't be room in the pews for all the people that want to be a part of that. So we do it for the sake of the gospel because we represent Christ here on earth. We represent him by the way we treat other people, starting with the people in this room and moving out from there. So I ask, what is your role in this? What is your part in the unity of this church? Well, it starts with the pastors. It starts with us teaching and encouraging this idea. It starts with us modeling this idea of unity. If you're a leader, if you're a deacon, you fall in the same category. You should be encouraging this. You should be modeling this. We as leaders of the church need to help bring this place to unity. But everybody plays a role in this. Unity doesn't happen with a few people. Unity happens among everybody. So maybe you're in the first part of this message and you are the person causing division. You need to repent. You need to repent of your sin and get on board for a church that is unified for the gospel of Christ. Maybe you are the person that needs to help be unified in mind and thought. And you need to help focus on Christ as we all focus on Christ and find unity in that and move forward from there. I can tell you this, we all need to watch our tongue. We all need to tame our tongue. And the way when we do that, this church will be unified for the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity that it teaches us to love one another. I thank you for the high command that we should be perfectly unified. God, I know we can't get there, but God, I pray that this church would take every step possible to move closer and closer to that perfectly unified in Christ. God, it is by your blood that we all have something in common. It is by your blood that we can be unified. So God, I pray that each and every one of us, we would choose to do our part to be unified so that your gospel would go forth from this place. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.